1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody.
2: And I'm Brian Krim. None of us knew the Cold War was in its death throes when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. But... I think we all sensed some change in the air, and Hollywood did too. Depicting the Soviets as bad guys, the evil empire, or even just poor downtrodden slaves to an inhuman communist ideology was so passé. None of it rang true with this young, okay in his 50s, smiling reformer with a pretty wife and distinctive birthmark on his bald head running the Soviet Union. Gorbachev's ascension to power changed the Cold War dynamic in several ways. He dialed back Afghanistan, opened up the Soviet Union culturally, set free some political prisoners, that sort of thing. In the process, he also changed the Soviets' rhetoric. Ronald Reagan was in his second term and didn't need to keep posturing about the evil empire to get votes anymore, so he was looking for some legacy building also. The U.S. rhetoric responded in kind.
0: Hollywood reflected this thaw in the Cold War, by beginning to appreciate the idea of two Russias. There's the Soviet bureaucratic state filled with grey men doing their best to prop up a crumbling artifice. We see them in any film about the Eastern Bloc. But then there's the hidden beauty of the Russians and sometimes other nationalities, although Hollywood rarely bothers to distinguish between Russians and Soviets, who live rich and full lives despite it all. There's beauty in the country, good people like us who also
2: want the nonsense to end. You might think it's crazy, but one of the first films to not just reflect this change in the Cold War but predict it is Rocky IV. I mean, it's not high art, but Rocky's speech at the end after he beats Ivan Drago is remarkable when you consider it, it it is 1985. Sylvester Stallone directed the movie and had the foresight to depict Gorbachev in the crowd seeing him as a reason for this change he talks about. Rocky IV is not one of our movies this week. know, we're not snobs or anything, but it isn't. Still, uh, we need to give Stallone some credit for this speech because it sets the stage for what comes later in the Gorbachev era. Let's listen to it.
1: I came here tonight. And I didn't know what to expect. When I seen... A lot of people hating me and I didn't know what to feel about that so I guess I didn't like you much none either.
3: During
1: this fight I've seen a lot of changing.
3: The way
1: you felt about me and the way I felt about
3: you. In here, there are
1: two guys killing each other. But I guess that's better
3: than 20 million. What I was trying to say is that if I can change and and you can change
0: the visuals are also really crucial in this scene because Gorbachev begins this slow clap and all these uniformed Soviets start cheering. Rambo, killer of communists on two continents, can change because the Soviets clearly had. Okay, it's Rocky, not Rambo, but In the American movie palaces of the 1980s, let's face it, same thing.
2: Yeah, and I was a fan, but I was also pretty young. But our three films this week show the two rushes in different ways and in different stages of the 1980s Cold War. The difference in release dates, even in some cases just months difference, are really important. White Nights, the story of a Russian ballet dancer who defected to America and is forced to return, came out in December of 1985. The Hunt for Red October, based on a 1984 Tom Clancy novel, was released in March 1990, a few months after the world changed. The Russia House, based on John le Carre's 1989 novel, came out Christmas Day 1990, exactly one year before the Soviet Union closed up shop for good. So, what
0: are our lies agreed upon for these late-stage Cold War films? Well, the first gets to our episode title. There are two Russias. This isn't a lie, of course, but it took Hollywood long enough to show us likable, fully developed Russian characters that we want to treat it as something that needed to be rectified. Each of our films reveal two Russias, although in very different ways. I mean, can you think of two different novelists than Tom Clancy and John le Carré? White Knights definitely
2: skewers the Soviet system as well, but it pays attention to its victims. The second lie is that Americans, or the British and Americans in the case of Russia House, and the Soviets can't work together. This could be state-to-state or person-to-person. Sometimes the Russian and American-slash-British work together against their own systems, kind of a fu to the Cold War. Or the systems come together to manage it more effectively, almost prolonging it, but in a mutually beneficial manner. If you want to be cynical, and we do, the Cold War served itself, and there were plenty of Cold Warriors who never wanted it to end.
0: And a third lie is that the Americans, again, include the Brits, are the good guys in these relationships, always. We see some pretty varied representations of the West in our three films. It's worth noting the diversity of views out there by the time we get to the mid-80s. After decades of John le Carré's cynical operatives functioning in the gray zone of Cold War politics, espionage, and morality, competing against the uncomplicated certainty of Bond, Rambo, and others, Hollywood kind of comes around to le Carré's perspective that the whole artifice is rotten and ordinary people are ground to dust on both sides by what amounts to a great game.
2: Well, let's recap our films. White Knights is really a showcase for the amazing talents of Mikhail Bershnikov and Gregory Hines, two characters with completely different backgrounds and perspectives. It is directed by Taylor Hackford, who has an impressive filmography over several decades. An Officer officer and a Gentleman, Everybody's All-American, Against All Odds, and Ray are some of the highlights. Aside from Bershnikov and Hines, We have the film debut of Isabella Rossellini, who plays a Russian translator married to Hines, And Helen Mirren plays a former ballerina and former lover of Baryshnikov. She she actually eventually marries Taylor Hackford, and they're still married. The great Geraldine Page plays Baryshnikov's manager. White Nights is remembered for pairing up the premier ballet dancer with the world's most famous tap dancer, but it also features the Academy Award-winning original song Say You, Say Me from Lionel Richie.
0: And I have to say that just that description right there really encapsulates uh, a whole lot of pop culture from the 1980s. Because, you know, these movies that were um, sort of meaningful plots like An Officer and a Gentleman and like White Knights, but were totally intended to be mainstream pop culture. Uh, entertainment so that kind of that was really Taylor Hackford's sort of sweet spot um, and then really uh, Lionel Richie and uh, as the you know I mean that that he was sort of <laughs> yeah top of the pops and and you know MTV and all of that from yeah. from that era and of course uh, you know Baryshnikov and Heinz. Heinz has just come off of starring in Francis Ford Coppola's um, Cotton Club the year before,
2: right? Yeah, I and
0: and Barishnikov had been in Turning Point, uh, also again playing a you know what he is, which was a a, a, um, a defecting ballet dancer. So there, this was very sort of all of this was very topical. So even though the movie's really kind of cheesy, it really represents an aesthetic, a movie aesthetic of this era.
2: It does, and, and what does you know, this film have to do with the Cold War? Now, White Nights, which refers to the long summer nights in Leningrad or St. Petersburg uh, near the Arctic Circle, shows the human cost of the Cold War on people who are forced to live in its shadow, now, whose lives are ruined by it, in fact. Uh, the fact that one character is Russian who defects who defected to America and the other is an American who defected to Russia allows white knights to address a kind of both sides sort of scenario. Um, and while the Soviet state comes off considerably worse, Gregory Hines' character has good reason to turn his back on the home of the free.
0: The film begins with Nikolai Rachenko, Barishnikov and his manager, Geraldine Page, flying across the Soviet Union to a tour date in Japan. The plane experiences technical problems and is forced to land in the Soviet Union, which is, you know, kind of a problem because Nikolai defected eight years earlier, and he is rightly terrified. Now, we should say, as, as we said, the real Bereshnikov defected, um, but much earlier, from the Soviet Union to Canada in 1974. Nikolai is injured in the landing. And a wily KGB colonel figures out it's him, uh, in between like twirling the ends of his mustache because (laughs) he's like he's the most villainous villain ever. He he really is a a cartoonish character, unfortunately. Uh, His manager, uh, uh, Nikolai's manager, is desperate to get him back, but Soviet authorities see an opportunity to reclaim their great prize but they need to convince him and intimidate him if they can't convince him to stay.
2: Yes, and for this savvy move, they use an American defector, Raymond Greenwood, played by Hines, who happens to be a great tap dancer, exiled in Siberia, right next to this random military base where they had to land, uh, along with his wife, Daria, who's played by Isabella Rossellini. Uh, The idea is to get Nikolai to accept being repatriated with the promise he can get his old privileges back. Now, White Knights stages this interesting collision of an embittered Russian defector who loves America with an embittered American defector who hates America, or at least, you know, the one that forced him to fight in Vietnam. Now, needless to say, they don't get along at first.
0: Yes, and let's listen here to a drunken Raymond explaining his reasons for abandoning the country, Nikolai so desperately wants to return to he's it it actually is a very, very effective scene because he's tap dancing uh, just sort of randomly as a kind of form of his anger and his, his cynicism about what it was that America could offer him versus what uh, he's offered here. And so he's explaining himself, but we will also hear uh, the sound of, um, his hoofing, uh, as well.
3: I was a patriot. Greatest country in the world. I was also a tap dancer, which for a black person is not that unusual. To be wrong, I love to dance, love to dance. And I got work. I was cute. Cute little colored kid. Call us, color in those days. Cute little color Tapping away. Uh, of course, by the time I grew up, it's a different story here. He's an adult black man now. He's not so cute. Give him a boo. So I'm 18. I can't get a job. My mother says, she says, Raymond or yeah. can't just be hired killers it's not possible
2: we're Americans including this perspective balances out the KGB as basically the snidely whiplash characters Uh, but there are sympathetic Russians like Daria Galina, Nikolai's ex-lover and another noted ballet dancer and she's played by Helen Mirren whose grandfather was a diplomat for the Romanovs trapped in London when the revolution happened in 1917 I kid you not uh, and there are uh, plenty of other everyday russians who are sympathetic and you know also and they passively resist this system
0: the plot isn't complicated but at the same time it's completely improbable and insane the two great dancers become friends and we learn that the kgb is using raymond is pretty racist in its own right we have a use of the n word here And have no intention of keeping their promises to either Nikolai or Raymond. The CIA gets wind of Nikolai's plight and seem willing to abandon him too, but they also want to stick it to the KGB. The point is that they're not interested in the human dimension here any more than the KGB is.
2: No, and the film ends with Raymond, Daria, and Nikolai engineering an escape and outwitting the KGB, can't afford the bad press of forcing Nikolai to stay. He makes it to the U.S. consulate in Leningrad with Daria, but poor Raymond is stuck for several months more. The last scene is a haggard Raymond being exchanged for a Soviet prisoner, I think in the Finnish border. Uh, When he embraces Nikolai and Daria, Raymond says, I'm going home. For better or worse, I'm going home.
0: So now let's leave the ballet, tap dancing, and love stories for some good, clean military fetishism and some highly quotable dialogue. Yes, I'm talking about The Hunt for Red October, which came out in 1990, but depicts a semi-fictional event that was the topic of Tom Clancy's novel of 1984. It's directed by the great action director, John McTiernan, whose credits include Predator, Die Hard, a few of them. Last Action Hero. Well, okay, they can't all be classics. And The Thomas Crown Affair. Also, why does Hollywood keep remaking classics? It's, of course, based on the Tom Clancy novel. And his particular brand, Clancy's, of military adventure novels are always well-researched, and that includes his knowledge of the Soviet Union. For example... Clancy understood the nationalities issue better than most, whether it was Muslims in Central Asia resisting Soviet rule, or in the case here, a Lithuanian submarine commander in a Russian-dominated military, Clancy's stories were always a bit more complex than he's given credit for.
2: For example, Clancy understood the nationalities issue better than most. And Red Storm Rising, it was about Muslims in Central Asia resisting Soviet rule that touches off this, you know, grand conflict. Um, or, in this case, in Hunt for Our October, a Lithuanian submarine commander in a Russian-dominated military.
0: Let's gaze admiringly at this all-male cast, shall we? This is one of three movies we discuss starring Sean Connery, and two of them are in this episode. It just so happens that the vast majority of his career as a leading man coincides with the Cold War, so it's hard to avoid him. He is Marco Ramius. We have also Alec Baldwin, who's the first of the Jack Ryans. Uh, there have been five for those keeping score. There's, we have Scott Glenn, Jeffrey Jones, Tim Curry makes an appearance as the subdoctor, doctor. James Earl Jones as Admiral Greer, uh, Stellen Skarsgård, Fred Thompson, Sam Neill, Courtney B. Vance, Joss Ackland is the hapless Soviet ambassador. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on, and including Richard Jones as Jeffrey Pelt, the national security advisor. Any women of note? I do believe you see Jack Ryan's English wife for like maybe 10 seconds, So there's that. Oh, and there's a flight attendant.
2: We won't give you an exhaustive plot summary. After all, what's wrong with you if you haven't seen it? But here it is succinctly. The Red October is a brand new nuclear submarine with a silent propulsion system designed to evade detection and essentially be a first strike weapon. Marco Ramius and his trusted officers plan to defect with the Red October to the West, but the entire Soviet Navy is after them. Jack Ryan, who's a CIA analyst and naval historian, knows Ramius and is brought in to help predict his intentions, which are unclear as far as the U.S. is concerned. Maybe Ramius is a madman. Courtney B. Vance figures out how to track this so-called Caterpillar system, and Jack Ryan winds up on the U.S. submarine, the Dallas, to help Ramius stage his defection, save the crew, outwit the Soviet Navy, and prevent World War III. It's great teamwork by adversaries. The final scene gives you all the feels from the vantage point of 1990. The red October is somewhere in the rivers of Maine and Jack and Marco are having this nice, almost father-son conversation with one another. I grew up around here. My grandfather took me to fish off that island right over there.
1: There is one question you haven't asked me yet. Why? Well, I figured you would
2: tell me when you were ready.
1: Now, there are those who believe we should attack the United States first. Settle everything in one moment. Red October was built for that purpose. When the dust
2: settles from this, is gonna be hell to pay in Moscow.
1: Well, perhaps. Maybe some good will come from it. A little revolution now and then. It's a healthy thing, don't you think? There's a river, not unlike this one, near Vilnius, where my grandfather taught me to fish. And the sea will grant each man new hope. As sleep brings dreams. But Christopher Columbus.
2: Welcome to the new world, sir.
0: Yes, a little revolution now and then is a good thing. It seemed like that in 1990, I guess. Now, our last film is The Russia House, a beautiful film based on the novel by John le Carré. We both love Le Carre, an understatement, and the film is pretty faithful to it until the very end. But we're jumping ahead. It's directed by Australian director Fred Schepisi, who has a real eclectic filmography. There's Roxanne, Mr. Baseball, Six Degrees of Separation, and the really good miniseries Empire Falls.
2: Yeah, I did like all of those. I just don't know how he uh, he jumped from all these different <laughs> vantage points. But no, it's he's a skillful director. The cast is great. Sean Connery, again, here, uh, as Barley Scott Blair, the rumpled British publisher caught up in the great game. His double-barreled last name, for those who aren't in the know, is a signal that he comes from a long line of the British ruling elite. If you see a hyphenated last name for a Brit, Odds are they're from an old family.
0: Yes, so he is sort of this rumpled, uh, kind of bit of a drunk, bit of a a, a, a ne'er do well. But he he has this this kind of sense of um, uh, entitlement about him, even as he kind of is shambling through his his life. And Michelle Pfeiffer plays Katya Orlova the former lover of the nuclear physicist Dante, that's all the name we have of him for most of the movie, played by the great German actor Klaus Maria Brandauer. Now, we both absolutely love Roy Scheider in this as the CIA officer Russell. Roy Scheider is another star of the 70s who isn't really remembered much now, but I mean, he starred in Jaws and as the sort of Bob Fosse stand-in in in all that jazz, which won, I think, Best Picture. So, you know, this is, he was a big star, but he's not somebody that we think of uh, a lot now. There's a wonderful supporting cast of recognizable British actors, James Fox, Michael Kitchen, and the esoteric director, Ken Russell, in an acting role for a change.
2: I think an uncredited actor is Russia itself. It's only the second American production to be allowed into Soviet Russia, and most of it is filmed on location in Moscow and Leningrad. This goes with the novel because Lukare received permission to visit the Soviet Union in 1987 to research the Russia house, and that was a, considered a big deal because he was labeled by you know Pravda and those sorts of official publications as a Cold War provocateur for decades. Uh, And that pretty much means it's clear the Kremlin never bothered to read him if they actually think that. Uh, Russia House, the movie, lingers, you know, the cameras linger on everyday life in Russia. Beautiful countrysides, colorful houses and orthodox churches, bustling streets and markets, people living life. So I think it's important to to shout out the the cinematographer, Ian Baker, for bringing 1989 Russia to life. For those of us in the West, it was a revelation.
0: Yes. And just to note that uh, White Knights, they used um, a couple of Scandinavian capitals to stand in for Russia, because, of course, at that point, five years earlier, they weren't being given permission to go and film there. Um, so we probably can't do justice to Le Carre's intricate humanistic plot, but the Russia House is, in one sense, the same as many of his other plots Ordinary people are victimized by the entrenched interests of intelligence bureaucrats on both sides of the Iron Curtain. The story begins when Katya approaches Barley Blair's publishing house booth at a Moscow book fair with a manuscript written by Dante, a Soviet nuclear weapons expert. Dante intends it to go to Barley, but he didn't show up. And so it winds up in the hands of British intelligence. Who think they've found the mother They need Barley to rekindle his relationship with Dante to make it all work. Barley is captivated by seeing Katya. I mean, it's Michelle Pfeiffer, we get it. And actually does believe in Dante's cause, which is to tell the truth about the Soviet
2: equivalent of the military industrial complex. And so now we see Barley, you know, who's pulled out of a bar half in the bag in Lisbon and now facing a group of mi6 and CIA visitors and you know basically trying to understand how is it that he has this relationship with Dante. So we were treated to a flashback with a drunken Barley enchanting Soviet writers at some sort of retreat. It turns out this meeting is why Dante chose Barley to give his manuscript to. Barley is giving this long idealistic speech over much vodka and Dante thought he recognized a fellow traveler. Let's play part of that scene.
1: I believe in the new Russia. You may not, but I do. Twenty years ago, it was just a pipe dream. Today, it's our only hope. We thought we could bankrupt you people by raising the stakes in the arms race. Gambling with the fate of the human race. Barley, you won your gamble. Nuclear peace for 40 years. Oh, rubbish. What peace? Ask the Czechs, the Vietnamese, the Koreans, ask the Afghans. Now, if there is to be hope, we must all betray our country. We have to save each other, because all victims are equal, and none is more equal than others. It's everyone's duty to start the avalanche. The heroic thought, Father. Listen, nowadays you have to think like a hero just to behave like a merely decent human being.
0: So because Barley's words have convinced Dante that uh, he can be trusted, now Barley is stuck helping the intelligence services mine Dante for all he's worth. Remember, this is Glasnost and Perestroika time, and the... uh, MI6 and CIA operatives are all about exploiting Gorbachev's new openness. They train Barley to make contact with Dante through Katya, but the KGB seemingly get a hold of Dante first, and so Barley decides to make a deal for Katya. He gives up the giant list of questions that the West has for Dante in order to secure Katya and his, her family's freedom.
2: Yes, and and sort of Barley's main MI6 contact, Ned, who's played, we only get the first name, played by James Fox. He's the guy who starts this operation. He's actually, you know, the first to see that Barley's gone rogue because he's in love. The film ends with Barley waiting in his Lisbon flat for his ship to literally come in. Katya, her kids, and her uncle. And guess what? They do. It's 1990. Anything is possible. Would it surprise you to know that Lacare's 1989 ending is completely different, cynical, and ambiguous? Barley makes the same deal, but he is left waiting on the dock for a ship that literally will never come in. Even at the end of the Cold War, with optimism on the rise, Lacare sees the same institutions prevailing, crushing honest, innocent people beneath the wheel.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This
0: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So let's revisit our lies agreed upon starting with this concept of two Russias in Hollywood films coming at the end of the Cold War. We think it's important to remember how captivating the two words glasnost and perestroika were to Westerners during this time. Gorbachev was this strange new phenomenon, a gregarious Soviet leader who didn't keel over within 18 months of assuming
2: power. Yeah, and and so... It was an exciting time. I was in high school and I thought it was all fascinating. Everyone did. And so here's how most Americans learned about Glasnost from news reports like the one we're about to play with some ordinary Russians who Americans almost never got to see speaking about both the opportunities and the limits of this trend. Now, Glasnost usually translates to openness, but as Peter Jennings reminds us in this report, it also means publicity. Perestroika meant restructuring, that often referred to the economy or local politics. So this is a kind of a fascinating time capsule, a newscast from October 1987, that gives you a window of how most Americans you know, first encountered these two words. As ABC's Walter Rogers reports from Moscow tonight, people are talking more freely. Well, this is, to my mind, something like
1: fresh air in our society, you see. It's a great freedom. I think that uh, grossness is a first step towards uh, real democracy in our society.
3: At Moscow University and across the Soviet Union, there is a sense things are changing, that the limits of permissible criticism are expanding. One man having to stand in line to buy vodka wrote to a newspaper, why do I drink? Because everything here is vile, lies and deceit. As free as Soviets are to complain about shabby housing, abominable medical care, and corrupt local officials, the top leadership here, the Soviet military and the KGB, remain sacred cows above public criticism. I don't think I can say whatever I want now. Mm. I don't think that the freedom of criticism does really exist now. There are some subjects we we can't discuss. Well, there are. But I think that if we are clever people, we, we have this freedom. The fact that Soviets are saying these things, which they would not have said publicly just two years ago, is a measure of just how far this society has come.
0: And it's interesting that you hear Katya in the Russia house say similar things. She says you're free to complain about all the annoyances of living in the Soviet Union, but there is still deep cynicism about any kind of real change. Of course, if only they knew what was coming
2: next. White Nights is definitively pre-Glasnost and Perestroika, but there are hints of it even with the evil KGB colonel who is forced to consider public relations when dealing with Nikolai. Even the emergency landing that kind of starts this whole crazy plot is seized on as an opportunity to look good in front of the West. You can sense that the gray men like the colonel are on their last legs in White Nights. As Nikolai tells him when Raymond is exchanged at the end, face it, you lost. Eventually, the Galenas and Daryas of the Soviet Union will overshadow the decaying surveillance state. They already lost Nikolai twice, and even the American defector is beginning to regret his decision. The real Russia will break out eventually. And what we also see in White Knights just to do a callback to a previous episode,
0: is part of Hollywood's reaction to the concerns about increased belligerence between the two nations. Remember, this movie came out in 85, and the fears of nuclear annihilation that we've talked about. By humanizing Russians and pointing out that both nations have policies that mistreat their own people, the plot here is trying to do what we saw a lot of during the height of the nuclear scare. Separating out the people who would be the ones dying from the regimes who seemed increasingly intent on disregarding those people.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because uh, even in the Hanford October, we, you know there's this real deep concern for nuclear war and also very humanized characters inside the Soviet military. And you know this is a, a movie immersed in Soviet military culture or at least how Tom Clancy sees it. And it's entirely about a, you know, a nuclear weapon, a first strike weapon, that uh, would have brought us those horrible nightmares we talked about in previous episodes. In The Hunt for Red October, almost all the Soviets are competent, moral, likable characters, and that includes those who have no intention of defecting. The crew of Red October are patriots, and we respect them for it. This is a conflict between professionals who know the stakes and harbor mutual respect for each other. We empathize even with the Soviet ambassador who has to sit across from the National Security Advisor who knows so much more than he does. The only real bad guy is this uh, political officer that Marco Ramius kills in the first few minutes of the film. Um, Ramius is Lithuanian, as Jack Ryan likes to point out, which matters because he already has a problem with the Soviet Union for its oppressive nationalities policy. The Baltics did not fare well, as we know, And Clancy suggests that this plays into Marco Ramius's resentment.
0: The Russia house is interesting because it highlights the Russia we never got to see and the one that is emerging from what by 1989 is pretty much the end of the Cold War. Katya and her family, who we spend a lot of time with, are worth fighting for, Barley believes. The writers that Barley serenades in the dacha are worth fighting for. As Barley sees it, this stupid and pointless competition will wither away, and this new Russia can emerge. And that was probably Le Carre's hope as well.
2: Let's stick with the Russia house for a moment as we break down the second lie, that the West, represented by the US and Britain, can work together with Soviet counterparts, that's not always a good thing more useful to us than to themselves russell and ned one american and one brit want to help but their bosses are more vested in the cold war than seeing it end we've talked a lot about the military industrial complex and the capitalist drive to create and perpetuate needs and customers for the military Um, in other words the cold war can't really truly go cold Russell, who's my absolute favorite character, gets to the point about why he's willing to risk everything on Barley and Dante, even when it blows up in his face.
1: Rocket motors suck instead of blow. Their ICBMs can't even get out of their kennels. Their scientists can't do uh, solid fuel for shit. Our customers don't like to hear that. And yet here you are. And yet here I am. I've met. I'll tell you something. I am an honest-to-God glass Gnostic. I was born a glass Gnostic. My parents are old glass Gnostics from way back. And my children will be brought up to be glass Gnostics, although I don't have any children. And I really believe that Dante is a source from glass heaven. I can't look away.
0: Well, guess what? The favorite sons, their customers, get their wish and are secretly relieved the KGB got a hold of Dante before the truth about how awful Soviet missiles really were got out. It's just not good for business. And, surprise, that means Russia's new businessman too. And it's worth pointing out that we should have remembered this plot line when the war in Ukraine broke out. Maybe we shouldn't or wouldn't have been so surprised that the Russian military capabilities were so meager.
2: Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back to the, that 1960 missile gap myth that, that helped John F. Kennedy so well. Which you always want your enemy to be more dangerous than they are. And that uh, kind of is a story of the Cold War, really for on both sides. And we just have a story from the end of it. Now, as for the hunt for October, the whole movie is about Soviet and Americans cooperating. There's a, a threat to the nice, careful, managed Cold War order. But 1984 novel is different in tone because the film is made during the eventful year of 1989. That's why Ramius quoting Jefferson, a little revolution now and then is a good thing, is so effective. We know what's happening, and we know the Ramiuses of the world caused it. Not rogue sub-captains per se, but lots of non-Russians challenging the whole premise of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact.
0: And White Knights is even similar to the Russia House because you have two people, well, four if you include their wives and ex girlfriends, fulfilling their own life's desires and ambitions despite the Cold War. Nikolai did not want to languish in the Soviet Union where his talents would never be fully appreciated. Raymond thought the grass was greener on the other side, but he just exchanged one form of oppression for another. The KGB is obviously evil and indifferent to human costs, but the CIA characters are similarly invested, mainly in beating their competition. And if Nikolai is a useful tool to accomplish this, his personal feelings or those close to him are secondary.
2: Yeah, and if you think about the ending of White Knights, even though you no know, Raymond has made crossed it back to the West, you you wonder what happens to him. Is is it going to be? really a great situation and that's one of the things the russian colonel likes to throw in his face at the end is you know you you're still a deserter and we have to think you know uh that his fate isn't isn't all that clear either Uh, and that's that's a little bit of ambiguity in a film that otherwise is pretty one-sided against the soviet union Our final lie about the west as the good guys is one we've alluded to a few times in these films And all of these films utilize a real-world phenomenon, the Cold War, that's worth touching on, defecting. Throughout the decades, both sides dreaded high-profile defections. There was perhaps no other action that could so thoroughly undermine the argument that they wanted to make, whether it was the Soviet Union or the United States, that they were right.
0: Yes, in the 50s and 60s, there were the very high-profile revelations about the Cambridge Five, British moles, some of whom managed to rise to the heights of the British intelligence services and other positions of influence and authority, three of whom defected when they were discovered. Most defectors that the Western public were aware of were either artists or athletes, and there were a lot of them, ranging from Martina Navratilova to, well, Mikhail Baryshnikov, uh, and the director, Milos Forman, There was also the UN undersecretary, Arkady Shevchenko, and even Stalin's own daughter, Svetlana Aleluyeva. Here's Svetlana's press conference after her defection. 20 years ago, when I
1: joined the Communist Party as a student of Moscow University, I believed in
0: communism as uh, everybody, all my um, friends, people of my generation did, and I was taught it uh, since my
1: childhood. And perhaps the studies of history and social sciences
0: and economics and uh, Marxism itself uh, made me uh, well, a little bit critical to many things which I could see around me and uh, to the things I could see uh, in, in our country and in other socialist countries, because it was not exactly what we were taught theoretically.
2: Yeah, that's got a sting if you're the you know, a Soviet authorities. So it's very significant that, that White Knights, despite a pretty vicious portrayal of Soviet authorities, has a character who defected in the other direction. The movie might seem like a light film about love and dancing, but it doesn't shy away from scathing criticism of American racism and the Vietnam War. Raymond's emotional speech we played earlier is is pretty direct and accurate. Emptying the ghettos into the army happened, and that's something we talked about in The Five Bloods. And Nikolai
0: is a treasure in America, as was Barishnikov, an elite with special talent. So he doesn't see it or have to live with any of America's social problems. You know, what do we make of Raymond's repatriation? He's no Nikolai. And he deserted from Vietnam. So how will America welcome him?
2: And we know, you know, John Lucari is, is all about skewering the West's inflated national security state, particularly Americans. Um, and if there is a consistent criticism of his work, it's the anti-Americanism. Not because it's unjustified, but it can be overbearing. In the Russia House, Russell is indeed a good American but he's an anomaly. There's a great scene where we see the arrogance and parochialism of the CIA getting in the way of genuine intelligence collection and analysis. They just don't know what to make of Barley's cosmopolitanism or the joy of having a rich life. Now, JT Walsh, who's a great character actor, is leading the questioning here against Barley. And you just get a sense of complete lack of comprehension on his face throughout this exchange and it's, uh, it's it's funny to watch and it's funny to listen to. And I think it's, it's worth playing this moment in the interrogation.
1: Have you ever had any homosexual
2: experiences, Mr. Blair?
1: Just the usual adolescent handheld job. Same as yourself, I suppose. Your background is fairly liberal, isn't it, Mr. Blair? Background? Your father. No, my father hated liberals. He took the communist line mainly father died eight years ago? Yes. Which is about the time your visits to the Soviet Union became pretty regular. I hadn't made the connection. Have you formed any connection, however briefly, with any peaceniks, dissidents, or other unofficial groups of that nature? You meet all sorts? Jazz people? Book people? That's an impossible question. I'm sorry. Well, let me turn that around and ask you whether you've made any connection whatsoever with any peace people in England? Oh, hundreds, I should think. You have to stay indoors to avoid them. Can you think of any musicians you fraternized with whom you would describe or who would describe themselves as anarchists? Ah, there was a trombone player. Wilfred Baker was his name. He's the only jazz musician I can recall who was completely devoid of anarchist tendencies.
3: you disapprove of the English social structure, Mr. Blair?
1: Absolutely. Give me America every time. Thank you, Mr. Blair. Not at all. But you seem to go to Russia rather more than you come to America. Yes, because I prefer Russia. It's as corrupt as America, but there's less bullshit.
0: Yes, as corrupt as America, but less bullshit. Uh, Well, if he could only see us now. Of course... There's no ambivalence in the hunt for Red October. We are totally the good guys. Everyone wants to be like us. Just ask Sam Neill in one of my favorite quiet moments in the film. Here he is fantasizing about what his post defection life will look like. Soviets piece together all the fantasies of the American dream from whatever they're allowed to see. And it's it's kind of a cute and funny scene in, in an otherwise tense film. Then
1: I will live in Montana, and I will marry a round American woman and raise rabbits and she will cook them for me. And I will have a pickup truck or a, possibly even a recreational vehicle. And drive from state to state. Do they let you do that? Yes. No papers. No papers. State to state. Well, then. In winter, I will live in Arizona. Actually, I think I will need two wives. Well, at
2: least. You'll <laughs> need two wives, and uh, and it's really, it's of course, really sad that. He doesn't, doesn't make it with Marco Ramius. But Hollywood you know, picked up on the Two Rushes theme in the 1980s because it was not only good storytelling, it was current events, and Hollywood is always topical, if nothing else. We talked about three different films from different genres, a movie about artists showcasing their talents, a techno-military thriller, and a Le Carre adaptation about spies behaving the opposite of James Bond, starring the most iconic Bond of them all.
0: The hunt for Red October might be the most uncomplicatedly pro-West of the three, but by fully humanizing its Russians, it shows the new political reality. Saber-rattling really needs to be replaced by another kind of perestroika, a restructuring of the central Cold War relationship. White Knights and Russia House both question how much both the East and West has kept its promises to its people, and are both very cynical about the great game itself. And all of them are about defecting, the one concrete way that the average Westerner was able to keep checking in on the rightness of the West. After all, the Russians voted with their feet. And even there, these mainstream movies managed to put a little sting in their tail
2: lives agreed upon is written and produced by brian krim and leah parody our theme was written by simon parody we are a proud partner of the new books network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts for transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode as well as bonus content visit our companion website livesagreedupon.com. you can also find us on facebook and on twitter at lies underscore upon.